This is the IRE Radio Podcast, IRE, with you on your beat for over 30 years. I'm George Varney, and first, here's some updates. The official 2014 IRE conference schedule is live on the IRE website. We're offering more than 100 panels and hands-on classes in San Francisco. Session topics include business, public safety, government, healthcare, education, the military, the environment, and other key beats. Speakers will share strategies for locating documents and gaining access to public records, finding the best stories, and managing investigations. The deadline for pre-registration through the IRE conference is June 11th. After that date, professional registration fees will increase to $260. It's still not too late to apply for one of our one-on-one mentoring programs taking place at the upcoming conference. These sessions allow journalists to seek advice on challenging stories or follow-up ideas. We're accepting sign-ups for both mentor and mentees. A link to the registration form is available on the conference page of the IRE website. The deadline to apply is June 6th. Are you considering a run for the IRE Board of Directors? Seven out of the board's 13 seats are up for election this year. Declare your candidacy before May 30th to ensure your name will be on the initial ballot. To learn more about the board and IRE's new electronic voting system, visit ire.org. Is your newsroom ready to cover a natural disaster? Listen to Oklahoman reporter Paul Monies and CBS News Southern Bureau Chief Scott Keenan talk about their experiences covering the Twister on IRE Radio. So, coming up next on the IRE Radio Podcast, meet Liz Lucas, the NICAR Database Library Director. She'll tell us what data resources are available to IRE members, as well as share some of her own data reporting experience. After that, we'll have more speakers talk about this week's theme, Dealing with Difficult Data. Journalists from the Center for Investigative Reporting, Reuters, and USA Today will share their stories working through falsified, incomplete, or unfamiliar data. But first, here's Liz. Hi, this is Liz Lucas. I'm the NICAR Database Library Director at IRE. In the database library, my usual day involves dealing with a database that is not updating as it is supposed to, um, or a database that is just coming in because we filed a FOIA request for it, or uh, we note that data has been updated on some agency's website, and so we go and get it. Um, So every day that I'm working in the database library, I'm dealing with at least one of the 45 or so databases that we try and keep maintained for our members. Um, I also receive a fair number of emails and phone calls from members who have data questions or who need my help remembering an Excel function that I taught them during boot camp, or they are looking for a particular type of data and wondering if I have any input, or they're asking about a database that we offer to see if something's in it. Uh, so I spend a decent amount of time just talking to people about uh, data strategies or data we've got. As far as how to help IRE members or what I do to help IRE members, um, on a one-to-one, I'm always happy to take a phone call or respond to an email with whatever I can, you know, whatever I know about the problem at hand. Um, I like I like being really available to any IRE member who has a data question, um, but. Sort of a bigger picture would be bring all of the new data sources and new tools back to journalism. What I mean by that is, it can be it's it's easy to get kind of caught up in new technologies and new data sources, Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges is keeping that strong journalism integrity, figuring out how to use data responsibly, Um, because data can be extremely misleading uh, if you don't 
do appropriate research or don't know what you're looking at, right? There are a lot of pitfalls. So I think one of the best things we can do is provide resources and provide um, a way to help IRE members maintain really good journalistic principles when they're working with data. places, which I did when I was working at the Center for Public Integrity, um, one of my colleagues, who's one of the best environmental reporters I've ever met, it was Jim Morris, he was reading some random report, if I'm remembering correctly, some report from the EPA and read the words EPA watch list uh, for, I think it, there's a specific watch list for air polluters. And he had never heard of it before. and. Um, didn't know what it was or how to get it, but started poking around and making phone calls and finally got somebody at the EPA to confirm that it existed and then talked them into actually giving it to us um, using the argument that uh, in the current administration there was a push for more transparency and you know putting more things online and so they should really release the watch list because it would you know, be an important tool for the public to use when, you know, evaluating air pollution or uh, the facilities that are putting out pollution in the air. So the fact that he actually got the EPA to release that is, is kind of wonderful. Um, but it was essentially just a list without a lot of context. They didn't provide reasons for facilities being on that list. Um, you know, it was intended to be an internal list that EPA regulators were, you know, just keeping an eye on those facilities. So what we did was we tried to gather all the EPA databases we could get our hands on, databases on um, pollution, air pollution. So the toxic release inventory is a database of, you know, it's self-reported data, but it's these large facilities that emit a certain amount of chemicals each year. And so they report those things to the EPA. And we took EPA enforcement data and we took some other databases that try and map where pollution goes and how it affects a community. And we really tried to use all that data to drill down into which facilities were posing the greatest risks at the, for, for different communities. So the watch list was a good starting point for us, um, but we tried to bring in a lot of other information. And in the end, the most valuable thing we did was send reporters out to these communities and talk to people who live next to giant facilities and you know data sort of helps you see the big picture but when you're talking to somebody who has black soot over everything they own day in and day out you know that's that's that was sort of the real genius of that that series I think uh, was the fact that the CPI reporters went to these communities and talked to these people and just heard about what they have to deal with. Next, a look into difficulties with data. So you've compiled FOIA or scraped to get the data related to your story and you're ready to write up and investigate further. But it's not always that simple. What if something in your gut tells you not to trust the numbers? Will Evans was doing a story for the Center for Investigative Reporting on schools receiving taxpayer money in California. 
he came across a school that had the exact same large enrollment numbers over the course of many years. By digging deeper, he discovered why. What I found in, in, that made this story more interesting is that uh, this school was actually inflating its enrollment numbers to get more money, since all this money is based on, on the number of kids you have. Um, I, every school files, a, in California at least, files a private school affidavit where they report their basic information on the school and um, you know, their enrollment statistics by grade. And it's signed under penalty of perjury, but no one checks it. And even when it's proven to be false, no, no one does anything about it. So <laughs> these guys were reporting that they had 195 students every year um, 15 in every grade every year for like 10 years which was kind of a red flag and it was more of a red flag because I had seen the school I talked to these kids it was a tiny school the kids said there was like you know 15 students um, no more than 30 at any time um, and so I I knew they were inflating their numbers I wanted to prove it one thing I found really helpful was uh, fire department inspection records. There was a, you know, the, the uh, fire department had checked out this place as they do all these, all kinds of public buildings, and they had set a um, legal limit of 58 people that could be in this place. So 195 students wasn't really gonna, wasn't really gonna happen there. The fire, the, I talked to the, the inspector and he said he'd been there and there was like, yeah, maybe 15, 20, 20 kids, yeah. You know, um, place was in total disrepair, the, um, but the pastor drove an Escalade, you know, so we knew where the money was going. Um, the, um, based on the suggestion of my editor, I uh, staked out the school a couple mornings, just sat outside in my car and watched the kids come in just to, you know, just to make sure I wasn't missing the 195 students come in. And sure enough, you know, one, one day there were 15 and the next day there were six. So, uh, you know, this, it was clearly not, uh, they were clearly lying on these forms and they were getting money based on it. I also found, uh, you know, always check court records for everything. Um, there was a bankruptcy proceeding. The school filed for bankruptcy unsuccessfully years ago. And um, as part of that, uh, one of the school representatives had said they had no more than 20 kids. That was a few years ago, but that same year they had filed with the state that they had 195 kids, you know, so. It makes sense to be on guard against fraud when reviewing self-reported data. Ryan McNeil was a member of a Reuters team that collected its own data. They were investigating online child exchanges. Their problem was not validity, but scarcity. McNeil and the team needed to figure out a way to differentiate children in the database when sometimes all they had was age and sex which could easily overlap across multiple children. Uh, we have tables for agencies, discussions, interests, kids, offers, and people. And the way that breaks down is um, people are anyone who's not a kid who somehow comes into contact in our process. Um, that could be somebody offering a kid. That could be somebody interested in the kid. And by interest, it would be so somebody would offer the kid and then somewhere in that thread of discussion, they would come back and say, hey, uh, can you contact me offline or here's my phone number or whatever. So that would be you know, what we would define as an interest. And we also tracked what we called discussions. And that was people who were talking about kids uh, that they were having problems with or maybe they were thinking about it but they didn't make a clear offer. 
those kinds of things. Um, and then agencies were, um, and, and some of these we ended up not using, uh, the agencies would be, you know, like third-party groups that would advertise these kids on behalf of somebody else. And I think I, and then of course kids. But as you can see here, in a lot of fields, and there's actually a lot more fields, and I'll show you in a minute here, we have very little information about these kids. And so, you know, in some cases, we might only know an age and a sex. And so we had to come up with some sort of way to know that we were dealing with different kids and, um, and how we were going to track them in the system. And, you know, like if you're doing data entry with, say, campaign finance reports or uh, something like that, you know, there's always some sort of identifier, you know, like a filing number or a report number or something like that you, that you can tie it back to. Well, we didn't have any of that. And so what we ended up using was um, the number of the email. So every email, when, we, when Janet scraped it, she assigned it a unique ID. They went to work. They spent about uh, uh, a month and a half entering this, this information. We had two different people that entered it, information. And then what I did was uh, we took it and, and then we had to clean it. And the reason we used two different people was to get a higher level of accuracy. You figure if two people both say that it's uh, a kid named Jamie and they're eight years old and they're from Oklahoma or something like that, then there's a good chance it's right. But if you only have one pair of eyes on the data, it pays to take time and look into entries that appear unfamiliar. USA Today's Frederica Shouten is familiar with super PACs in her area, so when she saw one she didn't recognize, that was a red flag to investigate. I, so I talk about like sort of casing the joint and casing the data. Um, I spend a fair amount of time looking through like here's a list of super PACs. Here are all the super PACs that file reports this, this week um, in the latest filing. Who am I, have I never heard of before is one of the first things I want to look at. Who are you, the Committee for Economic Freedom and Social Justice that raised $183,000 and I don't know who you are. As it turned out, I'll give you this example, uh, it's a state senator in New Jersey who has a super PAC who got 40% of the money from the bail bond industry. Uh, this turned into a front page story this week because he has been having a long running feud with the school board in Elizabeth, New Jersey and started a super PAC with his campaign consultant to get rid of three board members he did not like. And the donors were the bail bond industry and um, online gambling interest. He's a big fan of expanding online poker in New Jersey. And so a Nevada gambling consultant was another big donor. This is amazing. Someone asked uh, earlier about whether this stuff applies in state races. Oh yeah, it does. And local races. I mean, we're talking super PACs getting involved in constable races, in mayoral races, in school board races. If politicians can find another bucket of money, they will take it to their donors and will say, can you fill this, please, for me to go do the things I need to do? Um, and it, as it turns out, 
right now just a sort of slight diversion, super PACs are legal in about 39 states. I mean, they're, they're basically legal as a result of Citizens United and another decision called Speech Now. Um, and so we're gonna see them proliferate in this country and they're gonna be used for all sorts of purposes. That is just one part of the campaign finance picture. But again, because I was just like sort of casing my data, looking at super PACs and saying, who are you? I've never heard of you before. I'm a campaign finance reporter. You don't spend any money in federal races, school board races. listening. Next week we'll have stories on the Freedom of Information Act. A WNYC New York Public Radio reporter will give tips for using the FOIA machine website and more next time on the IRE Radio Podcast. That's it for this week. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Barney.